To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works." And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end To him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Dr. Mike is the founder and president of Florida Counseling Centers, a psychological services organization that serves Central Florida, where he maintains an active clinical practice. He's authored both professional articles and popular books. His latest one's entitled Stress Relief for Life. Uh, Dr. Mike earned both a Master of Arts and a Doctor of Psychology and Clinical Psychology from Wheaton College. Uh, He completed his pre-doctoral internship Uh, with an emphasis on child, adolescent, and family therapy at Alexian Brothers Medical Center in Chicago. But prior to his graduate studies in psychology, uh, Dr. Mike, uh, by the way, it's Dr. Mike Ronces Valley, which is why we call him Dr. Mike, uh, completed seminary training at Samford University's Beeson uh, Divinity School, where he received a Master of Theological Studies. Uh, He's been married to his wife, Crystal, for uh, 20 years now, and he has three children in that interesting age range of 10 to 18 years of age, two sons and a daughter. So why is Dr. Mike here today? Well, um, he was instrumental in working with me uh, intensively throughout my sabbatical in the summer of 2016. When I knew I was in deep uh, chimchi, uh, I said, who do I go to for help? And uh, he was the person I said I need to go to. And uh, I've continued to see him regularly since then, about a couple of times a month. And uh, because of the size and the scope of uh, his practice, he has a unique insight uh, into the sin and brokenness of our community. He has multiple psychologists, a psychiatrist, and whatnot on, on staff in two different locations here in Melbourne. Well, several months ago in one of my regular sessions, I was... Uh, I asked him what he believed was the greatest threats to our community, and he didn't really hesitate to say what was, you know, destroying our families, destroying our community is stress and sex. I kind of expected the first one, uh, because that was one of the things that he really zeroed in on me on, uh, especially a couple of years ago, but I was really shocked by the sex part, 
And uh, so when we started, uh, you know, envisioning this sermon series, and I, I saw how much sex played a role in this, I remembered the depth of that conversation as, we, uh, as I went there with him and asked him to explain what he was talking about. And uh, since our passage deals with one of those two great threats, I've asked him to come in just a moment and give us some of those unique insights. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, he himself, speaking of Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You know, the gospel of Jesus Christ, it teaches us so much, right? It teaches us what it costs God so that he could forgive us of our sins, so that we could be reconciled to him. That cost, what was it? It was the death of Jesus, so that those who are now in Christ have been assured that our sins have been forgiven, and that we will spend eternity with our loving Savior. But Peter, in this passage, in those verses, he gives us great insight. He tells us something that's wonderful, that Beyond what, is, what we can look forward to in the afterlife, there are real world changes that are happening right now in our world, in us, and each of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. You see, through the gospel, sin does not have the final word in our lives. In our day-to-day lives, sin does not have the final word. Through Christ, Peter says, we can live to righteousness. We can live righteously. We can have holy lives that point people to Jesus Christ and make Christ and the gospel attractive to those who don't know him. We can have victory over sin. The gospel also teaches us in this passage that it's through Christ and through his wounds that we are healed. Now, what does that mean? Certainly, it's referring to the breach that was there between us and God and our relationship with God. That is healed, but it's more than just that eternal breach. It's also referring to the effects of sin. If we were to put it in modern language, it's speaking to our brokenness, our dysfunction, our addictions, our harmful habits, our idolatries. Everything that is the result of sin can be made right. It can be restored by the gospel. And last week, Ben, he talked about gospel restoration. And this includes sexual brokenness and sexual addiction and sexual dysfunctions, and sexual items that are the result of sin's presence in our lives, in our church, in our city, and in our community. So this week, we're turning to Thyatira. They had idolatry, and they had sex problems. And interestingly, Jesus mentions the sex problems first, whereas Pergamum, he mentioned the idolatry problems first. To this city, this city was known for its worship of Apollo, the sun god. Jesus says to this city in Thyatira, Thyatira was an industrial city. They were known for their business. It was like a crossroads city. All of these other cities that we have looked at, they had major arteries that went to Thyatira. They were known for their business and marketplace. And so therefore, the trade guilds that we talked about a couple of weeks ago were actually more pervasive in Thyatira than they were in Pergamum, which meant 
that the believers of this church, in order for them to make a living and practice their trade, they were part of these trade guilds, these trade unions, and these trade guilds, as part of their normal practice, would go to a temple once a year or twice a year. They would throw an idolatrous feast where the participants were expected to sacrifice an animal, and then many times they participated in sexual orgies or sexual uh, rites uh, with prostitutes and things in order to worship their God. If you didn't participate in this, you were thrown out of your trade guild. You lost your ability to make a living and your livelihood. So there was a huge cost for standing up for Jesus Christ in light of this historical context. So to the church in Thyatira, he says, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. In other words, I am planted in this city, church. I am not going anywhere. I am here to stay. And while this city worships Apollo, the God of the sun, I am actually the sun. And I see everything. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. You see, unlike the Ephesian church, this church did not have a love problem and a service problem. Their love and their service to the community was growing and growing and growing, but I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, that woman who from the Old Testament was such an adulterous woman who deceived and poisoned the children of Israel with sexual immorality and idol worship. You have this woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. As one writer has put it, this church, they could handle the pressure from the outside forces, like the government. What they could not handle and what was threatening their existence was the poison from within their church that was threatening their existence. They had a sex problem in their church, it was in their city, it was in their community, but it was in their church, and it was a sex problem that the, only the gospel could heal. And we need to hear about that this morning. So, Dr. Mike. First of all, just let me tell you how much I appreciate the opportunity to speak today at Covenant. You guys are doing an incredible work in this community. You're doing incredibly healthy things here. So it's a privilege and an honor to be able to just have a few minutes and talk to you a little bit about sex. Um, Jerry, I thought this was hilarious. I do clinical work at my office, but I also do a lot of speaking around. So I speak at churches and businesses. And just this Friday, just this weekend, I was at the University of Central Florida talking to administrators and leaders about a drug-free workplace. So Friday, I was talking about drugs. Today, I'm talking about sex. Can someone please invite me to talk about rock and roll somewhere tonight? <laughs> Anywhere. I mean, can you imagine? I could put that on my website in one weekend. He talked about sex, drugs, and rock. Anyways. <laughs> so, Pastor Jerry asked me to speak today, and I, I jumped at the opportunity um, because, guys, we're faced with a crisis. We've got an incredible crisis on our hands, and the crisis is not just culturally, 
It's not just happening out there. It's happening in here. And I'm not talking about Covenant Church in particular. I'm talking about the church at large. We've got an issue. And guess what? What is the church composed of? People. Us. So individually, we've got major issues with our sexuality, and the enemy is leveraging it against us. And he's he's trying to use it to destroy us. I really do believe that. He wants to steal the innocence and the purity of our kids, and he wants to kill our marriages with it. And he wants to destroy our emotional lives and our hurt in our hearts. And, he, and what is he? He comes to kill, steal, and destroy, right? That's, that's what he's doing. But he's having a banner day with this the last several years. He's being incredibly successful because he's got a new weapon and a new tool. And the new tool is technology. It's technology. We love it, right? I can't, I thought about putting my iPhone back by Pastor Jerry, I just couldn't do it. I had to keep it with, I love, we love technology, right? It's part of us, it's supposed to make our lives so much easier and so much better, but I'm telling you guys, the reality is that the enemy is leveraging technology against us in the most intimate, special area of our life, in our sexual life. And I could go on for hours about how destructive technology's been for us culturally, but I'm going to focus on two things. Number one, I'm going to focus on the internet and pornography and just the brokenness and all that. And then I'm going to talk about the marriage, and this is crazy, the marriage of pornography and social media, especially in in the context of our young people. All right? You with me? Okay. So let's talk about the internet and pornography first. There's this, there's this little website. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of it. It's called Twitter. Somewhere around 160 million unique visitors every month visit Twitter. I don't get it. I tried to tweet. I just, I don't even get it. But a lot of people love it. There's another little website. Maybe you've heard of it. It's called Amazon. You ever heard of Amazon? Jeff Bezos is taking over the world 110 million visitors every month. And there's another website called Netflix, which is an addiction that we'll talk about later. I'll come back just for Netflix. 46 million unique visitors every month to Netflix. But I'm going to give you a statistic that I think will shock you. Porn sites trump Twitter, Amazon, and Netflix combined with over 450 million unique visitors per month. Is that crazy? Sex sites are responsible for close to 30% of the bandwidth consumed on the internet every day. You get nervous? I get nervous just saying it. That's how much a part of our lives internet sex has become. So you got to think if there's that much bandwidth being used for pornography, there's a lot of people looking at it, right? These numbers are low, but 
We'll go with them. 65 to 70% of men look at pornography consistently. 30% of women look at pornography consistently. And when I used to do this talk, this kind of thing, I would talk a lot about men, you know, men and pornography and men like porn. But the truth is, in our clinical offices, we're seeing more and more and more women that are getting kind of just snared by this thing in their life. I'm gonna let the numbers speak for themselves with our children. Makes me mad, man. 70% of little 11-year-old boys have had exposure to pornography. 70%. 97% of teenage girls have seen pornography by the time they're 16. This is not an issue that's kind of out there that some people deal with and that some people have a problem. This issue is here and it's among us and we've got to talk about it. So Pastor Jerry asked me to come talk, I'm here because we've got to address this head on. So the interesting thing about pornography as I talk about it with people is lots of people, lots of people in the church, they really don't think there's anything wrong with it. They kind of think it's just this benign thing that, you know, sort of has become almost a pastime for some, some people. And I hear things like, ah, it, just, it, doesn't, it doesn't hurt anybody else. It's just, a, you know, it's kind of a healthy thing. It's a healthy thing for me and my marriage. Have you heard that one? I have. But unfortunately, just because you believe something isn't harmful doesn't mean that it's not harmful. Do you know that? In the Second World War, the U.S. government gave soldiers all the cigarettes they could smoke. I mean, they handed them out like candy because right? they thought they were fine, right? No big deal. Newsflash, cigarettes are bad for you. <laughs> and so is pornography. And so I want to give you just a little snapshot of the reality of what's happening to us as a culture. Here's what pornography does. Number one, Pornography makes you less appreciative of your spouse. Makes you less appreciative of your spouse. Every time you watch pornography, you're going to school. And here's the lessons you're learning. A real body isn't good enough. One body isn't good enough. Your partner's body isn't good enough. And the research essentially shows that pornography affects how satisfied an individual is with their partner. And it greatly impacts how much we enjoy sex. Like real life sex. So people who watch porn regularly are less satisfied with their partner's appearance. They're less satisfied with their partner's sexual behavior. And this one is like mind boggling to me. The more you watch porn, this is research. The more you watch porn, the less sex you actually have. Second thing pornography does is it, it affects our commitment. Basically, pornography creates this sense in people that they're missing out on something. You know, like you watch all this crazy stuff and then you feel like, well, man, my life kind of stinks. You know, and then you start to get discontent. Research says that both men and women report lower levels of commitment the more porn they view. 
So the more porn people watch, the less committed they actually are to their spouse. And the rate of infidelity double for people that watch porn consistently versus people that don't watch porn. Doubles the rate of infidelity. Enough said, right? Like drop the mic. Third thing pornography does, it can become addictive. A lot of people don't believe that. It can become addictive. We see people all the time in the clinical office that sort of transition from a casual relationship with pornography to a compulsive relationship with pornography. Because here's what happens. Every time you watch pornography, it's a novel sexual situation. There's dopamine that's released in your brain. Just a poof. Like, that's the feel-good neurotransmitter. And the more you rely on pornography to get that little dopamine rush, the less you're able to create it naturally in healthy ways. And so we scan someone's brain who's addicted to heroin. We scan someone's brain who's addicted to cocaine. We scan someone's brain who's addicted to gambling. We scan someone's brain who's addicted to porn. They all look alike. So this happens time after time after time after time, and people end up building a tolerance for pornography. That's a true hallmark of addiction, right? And when you have a tolerance for for pornography, what do you do? You look for different kinds of pornography, right? And so this is awful with our kids, right? Because they don't have frontal lobes. So they're, they're looking at stuff and they're clicking through. They're looking for that dopamine, but they're kind of, they have a little tolerance built up to it now. So they're gonna click through to that pop-up. Now they're watching something a little bit more deviant. And then it's a little bit more deviant. Then it's a little bit more deviant. And before you know it, what you've done to your brain is you've made it almost impossible for yourself to be stimulated by normal, healthy sexuality. I have guys consistently in my clinical office who have a very difficult time even getting an erection with their spouse because they're so used to this craziness that they watch on the screen. I have 25-year-old guys, 23-year-old guys, 30-year-old guys. I'm talking guys that are in the prime of their sexual life, right? Literally can't even have sex. Just because you don't think something is bad for you doesn't mean that it's not bad for you. So, everything I just told you, all of that, that research was not done by, you know, some Christian organization. It wasn't done like by Ebenezer Number 5 Baptist Church in South Georgia. <laughs> this, this was done by reputable secular research institutions across the nation and across the world. They're not coming with a Christian bias. They're coming just looking at the data, and the data is in. Now, here's the beautiful part for us, right? We're believers. We're all on the same page about sort of the manual for life. It's awesome that science confirms it, but there's nothing new under the sun. And if you look at Scripture, it's really, really clear Right? Jesus himself says in Matthew, anyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So he kind of brings the bar way up here 
This, this, is, this, this is not going to work, guys. If you're going to tell me that pornography is not lusting after women, I don't even know if we can have this conversation. Right? It's clear what Jesus says. It misses the mark. It's not healthy. It doesn't, it doesn't please God. And if you're a Christian man, and I want to talk to you guys specifically today. So ladies, just give me a second with these guys. If you're a Christian man and you're in this room today, I want you to know you are called to step up and honor women and treat them like the children of God that they are. Peter addresses this really clearly when he tells husbands, look, you better be considerate of your wife and you better respect her. And we're called to honor women and we're called to respect women and that's every category of women and that's even women on screens. Everybody knows pornography's messed up now. They should have known a long time ago because Jesus said so and the scriptures are clear on it. But we've got to talk about what this is doing to our kids. Guys, it's bad. This is going to be the first generation in human history that has grown up carrying thousands and millions of pornographic images in their pocket all day long, every day. Most kids can pull out their smartphone and have porn dialed up in 10 seconds flat. And guys, it's, it's just a mess. The stories that I could tell you of young men and young women that have been hurt by this is just, it's, it's heartbreaking to me as a dad, man. I said, it just makes me angry. Because here's... Here's what kids do. They learn through modeling. Okay, your kids don't listen to you. <laughs> I can tell you that for sure. They don't listen to us, right? What do they do? They watch us. And so now, what, what happens when a kid has a bunch of junk on a screen that they watch over and over and over and over? Pornography has normalized deviant sexuality for our kids. It is not uncommon at all. I'm going to make everybody uncomfortable, and I'm sorry. I'm leaving when this is done. That's the beautiful part. I'm out, right? I don't even have to deal with this. Pastor Jerry, can, he can pick up the pieces. Not unusual at all for us to have 12, 13-year-olds who are having threesomes, who are, you know, that's enough. That's enough. I'll just stop with that. They're doing stuff that is deviant, and that is going gonna, is gonna to hurt their hearts over time. And they're getting very poor information about sex because they're either watching it on the Internet or they're hearing it from their friends, all of which are awful sources, right? And their parents, us, we don't want to talk about it, right? Why? Because we're carrying all our baggage that we don't want to deal with. Correct? So they're just alone in this, and it's concerning. It's just concerning. I'm not going to go into all the social media that I really wanted to. Um, we can talk about th that with Q&A, um, but just know this. Snapchat 
is something that most kids have nowadays. It was started as a sexting app. I mean, that's just reality. That's why it was, the guys created it as a way to send a picture that disappeared three seconds after you sent it. So these kids are routinely taking pictures of themselves, nude pictures, and sending them. And so people come into my office, they're like, my kid is a deviant, you won't believe what he did. He sent, I'm like, look, let me tell you, I'm not saying it's okay, I just want you to know, your kid is doing what about 60, 70, 80% of the kids in his high school are doing. That's what they do. Their culture normalizes this, and as a church, we've gotta surround these kids and help them understand and know what healthy looks like, and the only way we're gonna do that is if we start having conversations. We've got to ha- start having conversations with our kids. We've got to allow ourselves to put this on the table and make it to where no question is out of bounds, where there's no shame involved, where we can just say, look, I want to help you navigate what is a crazy, crazy thing going on in this world. So when they tell you what their friends are doing, when Sally did this or Johnny did this, you can't say, oh my gosh, holy cow, you're never leaving the house again. You got to just sit. And let me tell you the biggest key to this, this, I struggle with this so much. You got to listen. You got to listen, 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 listen. All right, so what do we do with this mess? I'm gonna give you just some quick strategies for what we can do with the state of this brokenness and really what God wants to see happen. Number one, the first thing you can do is you can believe that God created sex and that he created it for you. If you're in this room, you're a sexual being. So God's the author of sex. He's the author of love. God, God, let's go back to Genesis. God created Adam with a penis and Eve with a vagina. That, like he did that, it wasn't an accident. He wasn't walking through the garden one day and said, oh my God, what has happened? What's stop? That's not how this worked. God did this because he wanted to allow man to have this way of communication and intimacy and closeness in a one flesh relationship. All of creation is rhythmic, including sex. So we gotta start with God's a fan of sex. He created sex. It is the most powerful human experience that we can have. So we, by the way, when you talk to your kids about it, start with that, please. Um, Song of Solomon. You guys knew I was going to read Song of Solomon, right? I can't resist. It's a sex talk. It's easy. Um, It describes a beautiful, affectionate, romantic, sensuous, joyful, passionate love between a husband and a wife. So I'm going to read one of my favorites, Song of Solomon, chapter 2. It says, Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my beloved among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. I, that, I mean, come on, guys. You got to love that. I can just hear Barry White in the background. Can you? 
<laughs> oh yeah, this is the message. You guys probably don't even, you probably don't even use the message. Y'all are, y'all are theologians and scholars here. The message says, as an apricot tree stands out in the forest, my lover stands out above the young men in town. Oh yeah, can you hear him now? All I want is to sit in his shade and to taste and savor his delicious love. He took me home with him for a festive meal, but his eyes, they feasted on me. <laughs> Emphasis is mine. Um, <laughs> I had to read that because you, you can't look at the Song of Solomon and not understand that there's something powerful going on here that God has called us out to. You just can't do it. We have to trust that sex is not a bad, dirty, awful thing, that it's something that God has for us, it's special, and it is, it's the most powerful human experience you could have. When we, t- when we talk to our kids about sex, here's the message that a lot of parents give their kids about sex, and really the church gives their, their kids about sex. You ready? Here's the message most kids hear. Sex is awful, dirty, disgusting, horrible thing. Save it for your future husband. <laughs> <laughs> So, it's not just about fleshly desires or base guttural instincts. It's about this beautiful thing that God has for us. So, that begs the question, well, what can we do then? What can we do in the bedroom, Mike? Well, by the way, that that was my voice for men in the counseling room that are getting excited that we're talking about sex. Just thought that's how I mimic it. Um... A lot of people say, yeah, sex is missionary style. Um, anything else is sinful. They try to use the, the Bible to sort of support that. But the reality is, I think if you really look at Scripture, the Bible doesn't say, do this, don't do this. The Bible doesn't really say that. The Bible seems to be more concerned with who you're with than what you're doing in a marriage between a man and a woman seems to be more concerned with who you're with than what you're doing. It doesn't give a checklist that says no oral sex, no kissing in a bikini, uh, you know, no sex in this position. I, I can't find those scriptures. If you can, we can talk after. But what I find is the Bible's super concerned about who you're doing it with. Let me give you an example. A pastor friend of mine called me one day. He said, Mike, I got to talk to somebody. I'm going crazy. I said, what's up, man? He said, dude, I just was on vacation in a little town about an hour and a half outside of my house, riding down the little square in my car. And I look over and I see my head deacon with one of my other deacon's wives holding hands, walking down the street. It's like, what do I do? So we went through, you know, this whole process. And I thought to myself, you know, if they were married, that'd be wonderful right? How cool would that be? They went on a little weekend vacay, had some time to, to, you know, just get together and be together. It wasn't what they were doing that was the problem. It's the fact that they were married to somebody else that made it horrendous. So what they were doing wasn't bad. Who they were doing it with was the problem. As you're a couple and you're trying to figure out how do we, you know, what do we do? How do we navigate this sexuality? Start 
with the idea that this is God's gift to us and that really the Bible would say anything between a married couple that both people are mutually kind of okay with is fair game. These guys are like, man, this is the best sermon I've ever heard. (laughs) Can he come back next week and talk? (laughs) One little caution, guys. First Peter says to be considerate. That means you're not always gonna get what you want. Right? You might get what you want, but it might be every 10 years. That was a joke, seriously, that's pretty funny. (laughs) consideration for your wife means there's a level of love and patience that wants to encourage your wife to feel comfortable and well I'll tell you this much it's not to use your wife and if you're trying to act out your pornographic dreams that you've watched on the screen with a with a good woman who's guess what that's not what God's ordained Second strategy, be careful about rejecting your spouse. Um, a lot of times, you know, when, when your spouse, when you say, man, I just don't feel good, or uh, I have a headache, or, uh, you know, whatever. This could be guys or girls, by the way. A lot of women think I'm talking, no. There's, there's some men that just aren't interested. Your spouse, in reality, hears, I'm just not that into you. I'm just not that into you tonight. And by the way, you can have sex consistently, regularly with your spouse, but if it's just sort of like putting in time, if it's just like you're there, then they still are probably going to feel rejected. And just going through the motions is not, not really all that valuable. That's why a lot of guys get sucked into pornography. The most sexual thing about a woman on a screen is their availability. Their eyes and their pose screams, I want you and I won't reject you. So I'm gonna read Solomon's description of a woman trying to entice a man. She threw her arms around him, kissed him, boldly took his arm and said, I've got all the markings for a feast. Today I made offerings, my vows are all paid, so now I've come to find you, hoping to catch sight of your face, and here you are, I've spread all the stuff out in, in the bedroom. The linens are there. The bed is, smells good with spices and fragrances. Come, let's make love all night. Spend the night. Uh, and my husband's not home. He's away on business and he won't be back for a month. <laughs> Poor guy. Um, notice that Solomon doesn't mention anything about the physical attributes of the woman. She's trying to entice this guy to, to cheat with her, Right? He says nothing about, she was hot. What does he say? She wants you. She's attracted to you. You're valuable to her. That's what men get caught up. That's what women get caught up in who, who feel less than with their spouse. Then the last thing, and this is probably the most important thing, You've got to let God heal your past. There's men and women in this room today who are uncomfortable talking with your spouse. 
you're uncomfortable talking with your kids about sex just because you have all this baggage from the past that's just buried. You just don't want to deal with it. And most people have never really addressed or healed their sexual woundedness. And it starts, a lot of it is shame. Shame because of decisions we've made, right? I wish I hadn't have done this or this or that, and we just can't forgive ourselves. And there's a whole other group of people that just live in fear. And the fear is because of past sexual abuse that's happened to you. Sexual assault that's happened to you. And guys, when shame and fear live in the shadows, when you're unwilling to go there and look at it and take it out and heal it, it will have tremendous power on your life. Tremendous power. God wants to shine light on dark places. He wants to help you heal all that stuff so that you can live in fullness and restoration and peace. So if you're dealing with shame, we'll start with this. There's a God that's bigger than you all that's called you out, that's numbered the hairs on your head, who's got a plan for your life. Out of all the combinations of DNA that he could have chosen when he created you, he chose you. And you know what? You've made mistakes, and so have all of us. But as far as the east is from the west, that's how far he wants to remove those transgressions from you. So east to west, that means your sin is over all these choices, your number, nobody wants to talk about their number, all that stuff is over here. And you're over here. And God, all he sees is the beauty of who you are, the beauty of who you almost are. Your job is to allow yourself to live and walk in that freedom. When, when Moses was on the mountain time, on the mountaintop for the, for the first time, the only time in human history, we're, we're having God etch his word in stone. What was the nation of Israel doing simultaneously? Were they praying and interceding and saying, oh, let's just hold his, let's hold his hands up emotionally, let's help him? No, that was the, the opportune moment for them to cast the golden calf, the image of the golden calf, Baal worship. Did you know that Baal worship was basically a big orgy? So while Moses is like, like God's etching his words, the nation of Israel is having a big orgy, sexual brokenness like crazy. And that's the scene that he walks down to. It's ugly, man. I mean, who would have ever scripted that? Never, ever, ever scripted that, right? Yet, if we read the pages of Scripture, we see that because of the repentance that was birthed in the nation of Israel's heart, because of how, how that story played out, even the ugly parts of it, that God was able to do something inside of them with godly sorrow and repentance that for the first time in Scripture, we read about man's love for God. Every other time in Scripture, we read about God's love for man. What if God could take your brokenness, your choices, the things you don't want to think about, and he could use your repentance, and he could use your heart and and that healing to bring you to a point to where you love God more than you ever have because you've seen his grace and his peace and it's playing out in your life. That's redemption. That's restoration. And there's another group of people here today that have been the the victim of sexual assault. And I, this is, that's a lot for us to try to deal with today, but I'll, I'll say this. The stats are daunting. These stats are so low. These are a couple years old. Um, 
you know, there's a lot more than 27% of women that have been sexually abused or 16% of men that have been sexually abused. But I want you to know if that's you, absolutely 100% perfectly normal for sex with your spouse to kind of bring up issues for you of that trauma. Perfectly normal because see those, those memories are, they're located in a different part of your brain and that part of your brain is a very primitive part of your brain. It's like all emotional. So when, when you're in the situation that triggers those memories, you're instantly going to go to fear. Fear threat. So people respond to that either with hyposexuality or hypersexuality, meaning they just avoid the sexual situation because they don't want to feel scared, naturally, or they have lots and lots of sex with lots of different people because they're going to control sex and it's going to be on their terms. My, my encouragement to you is shine light on dark places. God cannot take that trauma away. We, we serve an all-powerful God. We serve, he's omnipotent, but the reality is, is that he can't change history. But if you can recognize that his presence is real in the midst of that trauma, that his presence is real in the midst of your recovery, and you can trust that as you shine light on dark places and you allow yourself to experience the healing that the Holy Spirit offers, you'll come to a point to where you can begin to function sexually. You can come to a point to where you have freedom and hope, and God can redeem even the the hardest of stories. That's all I got for you today. Let me pray for you, and then we're going to do some question and answer. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you so much because you're good to us and because you love us. We thank you, God, because you've been faithful to meet us here today. We thank you, God, for just the reality of your goodness in in our life and your grace in our life. Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask for the men and women in this room, the young men, the young women in this room to recognize and understand that what you have for them in regard to their sexual wholeness is real. And God, that there's hope. I pray for people that have been sexually traumatized, God. Allow the the healing balm of your Holy Spirit to flow into them today. God, give them wisdom about who they can talk to. Give them wisdom and confidence to be able to speak up and, and, and to be able to, to allow themselves to bring those issues to the, to the table with healthy people, Father, that can help them work through them. We thank you for boldness, Lord, to do that. We thank you for motivation to do it. And God, more than anything, we just thank you for your presence as we talk about these issues that make us uncomfortable. God, thank you for being here with us and leading our conversation in Jesus' name. Amen.